One of the things about wanting to be part of our mission, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, is that the worship service on Sundays, there are parts of it that will resonate with you, and there are parts of it that won't. There are parts of it that you'll really like, and there are parts of it that you won't. If you come here week after week and, and you walk out here going, I liked everything about that. Everything about that resonated with me. Nothing offended me. Nothing got me wrong. You might not be at the right church. See, some of you are not used to pastors screaming in your face, right? You are? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Some of you guys, right? Okay. Even our music. Some of us really resonated with my father's world. Brought back memories of youth camp or these churches. And then there's some other songs that we sang today where some of you are like, I don't know, why is he, why is Daniel hitting the cowbell inside of a sanctuary, right? Every time you hear the cowbell, it's like Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live. Sorry for that pop cultural, you know, more cowbell, please. I just want to shout that out every time Daniel plays a cowbell, more cowbells. Point is, you guys, I think if our church is doing what we are doing right, First and foremost, Jesus will be exalted. Secondly, you'll recognize that you are being stretched in some areas as a part of being a diverse community. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're glad that you're here today. And uh, we are marching on like good soldiers through the book of Acts. Here's an intro for you. Here's my favorite quote. Apparently, during the worship team rehearsal two, two weeks ago, as we were sitting around sharing about what they're learning and what God is doing, one of the persons said, you know, I'm realizing Paul was a thug for Jesus. And I thought, you know what? That's very cool. He was a thug for Jesus. Again, for some of y'all, they're going, what? That sounds offensive. That doesn't... Well, for some of us, we resonate with that. I think he was a thug for Jesus, Okay. I think he was a, you had to have been a tough guy. Look at his life. Look at what he went through for crying out loud, okay? He makes me want to be a little bit more thuggish in my own life. Oh, the Bible's to Acts 27. Too many of you are going, you can't pull that off even if you tried, Peter, okay? I know that. Acts 27 is where we're at. Okay, let me give you a little bit of context as we come to Acts 27 as we continue, Okay. We know that the book of Acts is a historical document on the movement of this Christianity, the church. And one of the leading figures that arises is a guy who will wind up writing like two-thirds of the New Testament. His name is Paul, thug for Jesus, if you will. Okay? And here's where we're at. Paul has spent 27 years of his life post-conversion on the eastern side of the Roman Empire. And his dream, we see it from his letters, has always been to go to Rome. Why? Rome is the center of the, of the pagan world at the time. And Paul, being Paul, dreams of being in Rome to establish a base there and to live out the rest of his lives declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we know from his letters to various churches that he's tried to go to Rome like three times, and God continues to close doors. And finally, God opens doors for Paul to go to Rome. But how does Paul wind up in Rome? In chains, as a prisoner. Why is he in chains as a prisoner? This is where we bet. Paul is being attacked and accused by the Jews who literally want to kill him, and they keep bringing these charges to Paul, saying that he's causing civil unrest, we talked about that last week, and that he's breaking temple laws. And the Roman justice system is unable to find Paul guilty. Now, if you're a judge and you find the guy, 
talking to those of you that are in field of law. Find a guy without any credible charges. What do you do with him? You do what? You let him go. You dismiss the case. But because of the cowardice of the Roman governors, Paul is forced to go, I appeal to Caesar. They had that right, a Roman citizen. Anybody wanted his child heard before the emperor at the time had the right. So Paul says, I want to go to Rome. And so the governor says, to Rome you shall go. So here's where we're at. Acts 27, Paul is finally on a ship and he's on to go to Rome. Okay, now two things about this, this passage because we're going to read the whole chapter. That you need to know. Number one, number one is this. Historians are amazed at how accurate the details are. We're going to read this text and it's going to read like, I mean, there are unbelievable details of sea travel and all this other stuff, okay? And, and they're amazed. And, and there are two reasons why they're amazed. No, uh, or two reasons why it's so accurate. Number one is, as we know, you're going to find we passages for the last time through the book of Acts. And we is Luke and Paul. In other words, Acts 27 is written from an eyewitness perspective. He is with Paul the whole time. Okay? He is with the Paul the whole time. So again, we're reminded that the book of Acts is not fiction. It is historical document. Second thing about it, and you'll see the details of how accurate it is. In verse 9, we'll read this. Uh, there's a reference to the fast, okay? Traveling after the fast. The fast is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That happened usually end of September, early October, like October 4th. Sea travel in the Mediterranean in that part of the season was incredibly dangerous. Nobody in their right mind got on a ship and traveled. Because of disastrous storms that would come up. And sure enough, they decide to travel after that. Because they don't listen to Paul. We're going to get into that. And an incredible storm comes up. So one example of details. Okay. So let's go ahead and read this text. And what I want to do is I want to kind of break it down. And, and if this is a, a narrative, a story, there are four acts, four chapters. And we'll just kind of highlight it as we learn some principles. Acts 27 verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Arimatium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Real quick, the ship that Paul's on first is a coasting vessel. What's a coasting vessel? It's the kind of ship that didn't travel in the open sea. It's the kind of ship that wouldn't prepare for that. It's a ship that traveled along shallow waters along the coast from port to port. That's the kind of ship that Paul's on. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Stop right there. Act 1. Here it is. We learn about the need for Christian community. Paul is going through probably the most difficult time in his life. His life is going to be a series of trials and series of storms, series of hardships. And it is during this time that Christian fellowship, Christian community comes around Paul and becomes his anchor. Check this out. Look at the verse that we read. It's remarkable that both Luke and a guy named Aristarchus, who you find in Acts 19, by the way, were able to go with Paul, it says verse 1, in the company of other prisoners. Now check this out. There are prisoners on the ship. So he has a question. Why is a centurion like Julius allowing two random people to travel with this prisoner? It's costly. It's dangerous. What allowed or enabled Julius to actually say to Paul, yeah, you could, you, could, you could have these guys tag along with you, which was very, very unusual. Now, a lot of commentators and scholars said this. Luke and Aristarchus weren't just traveling as, you know, just they literally were traveling as Paul's slaves, performing the duties of a slave and actually passing as a slave. Two things it did. Number one, number one, Paul's sort of, Paul's 
uh, Paul, Paul's sort of who he is was greatly enhanced because as Julius looks at Paul, he says, this guy's not just a nobody. He's got two servants, two slave servants who are traveling with him, caring for all of his needs. And as we'll see, incredibly important that Paul becomes a very influential figure in this narrative. And the reason why he was is because who he was was enhanced. Secondly, think about it. Not only that, more practically, there are two people that are literally by his side every step along the way on this treacherous journey. Now, it's just a speculation, but it's really incredible that Luke and Aristarchus said, Paul, we're going to go to this length to be with you so you don't have to travel alone. Another, another form of Christian community that comes is verse 3. Did you catch that? God provides unexpected spiritual encouragement and freshmen at Sidon, where Julius, again, lets Paul get out of the ship. He's a prisoner. Get out of the ship. Visit a number of Christians in a church, perhaps, in Sidon, where the Bible says that they met to his needs. And it's not just physical needs. You can imagine they prayed for him, fellowship with him, encouraged him. The rest of Paul's life, as we saw from Acts 24, 25, is incredibly difficult. And what do we see Paul doing? We've done this, guys. Paul begins to swim in friendships. Paul begins to swim in Christian community. Paul begins to swim amongst those that are closest to him as he goes through the most difficult part of his life. There's an enormous biblical principle that we hammer away at this church, and that is this. To want and need spiritual friendships, to want and need Christian community is not a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of what? A sign of deep maturity. Evangelical Christian community in some ways is a huge disservice because somehow we've taught to you that spiritual formation or spiritual growth happens because of information. Many of you think you're actually spiritually growing and changing because you come week after week and listen to sermons and go home. The disciples of Jesus were changed because they spent time with their master. It is in the context of vital relationships and community that you grow. Are you letting yourself need people? That's the question we ask. Are you letting yourself need people? And you guys heard me say this before. The problem with wanting friends, the problem with wanting friends, needing friends when you're actually in trouble is that it's too late. It's too late. You've heard me use this analogy before. Nobody walks around going, I love air. What good is life? What good is my brain? Without air. No, the only time you go, what good is air, is when you're underwater. Then you go, air. When you really begin to need and realize the value of community and friends is when you're emotionally under. But by then, if you don't have it built in, it's too late. Are you letting yourself need people? I think Christians struggle with this more than non-Christians. What do you think? There's something about being a Christian. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I'm projecting myself on you. But this is not becoming a Christian where we go, I got it. I got it. I got it. I need to show a sign of strength. See, sign of spiritual maturity. I don't need anybody. I can handle myself on my own. And so... you know who's the greatest teacher for me in this is my wife. My wife. I've said this before, I think. My wife is surrounded by m- women at her practice where she works. 
that is the most beautiful example of community I've ever seen. And it really challenges me. We've had several of them over at our house for dinner. And about, what, four or five months ago, we took Korean barbecue. They all came over eating dinner and talking stuff. And I was just sitting at the head of the table just watching these 10, 12 people talking. And I just sat there and I just thought, I'm jealous. The kind of community that these women are able to have. Here's another example. Recently, one of them got diagnosed with breast cancer, going through radiation and chemotherapy, Right? They threw a birthday party for one of the other partners and they were all up at this house having dinner, so on and so forth. Her husband, who's kind of a quirky guy, showed up, right? Showed up and he decided to hang with the other women even though he wasn't really invited, okay? Ron is one of those guys. And in a very poignant moment as they were talking and discussing, he looked out and he said to all the women, he said, ladies, you need to know, this is my wife's family. My family hasn't even called, contacted her. You are her family. Are there people that you can say that about? Are there people that you can say that about? They go, you are my family. You. Are you letting yourself need people? Need for Christian community. Verse 4, from there we put out to sea again and passed the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Maya in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now here's a, they go change ships. This ship was a state ship. It was used for grain trade. So they're now on a ship that is not travel along the coast, but actually in the open sea. But as we'll see. Verse 7. We made, sh- we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed off Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast of difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul had said, become critical, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was harbor in Crete, facing both the southwest and northwest. Act 2, principle of the storm of God's intervention. We don't know the advice that Paul gives. When he says to them, we shouldn't travel. Now, we're going to get into this. We don't know if there was divinely sort of given to him. God gave him some special insight that he shouldn't travel. Or we could surmise that it was human wisdom. Paul was the guy who was experienced since he traveled during this time. He's been shipwrecked three times. And he says in 2 Corinthians, he spent 24 hours in the open sea. And either he was washed ashore or somebody picked him up. Now, if you're a guy who had been through all of that in the Mediterranean, two things. Number one, you're very wary of traveling at certain times. And two... You're sort of an expert. But you could imagine, these guys are going, you're a land lover. What the heck do you know about sea travel? So we're going to move on. They failed to heed Paul's word. Here's an insight for us as I thought about this. It's kind of ironic to me that when you look at the Bible, Paul writes about two-thirds of the New Testament. And I think about how many of our life storms come as a result of heeding Paul's clearly written words in the New Testament. I think about how many of the various life storms that we face in our lives 
and sometimes the hardships. Sometimes they'll come. We live in a fallen, evil world, and even as we walk in obedience, they come. But I think about how many of those come into our lives because we simply disobey and heed God's clearly revealed word. Anybody relate? Not if you will. How many of us have disregarded God's instruction not to worship, find significance, identity, and worthless idols only to our peril and pain? How many of us know the experience of ignoring God's instruction on use of sex or a sexuality that God clearly outlines only to our peril and pain? How many of us have ignored God's instruction that we are to be people of integrity and speak truth and never lie only to our peril and pain? How many of us have ignored God's instruction, simple, clearly written instructions on use of money, finance, and stewardship to our peril and pain? You know, what's funny to me is I pastor a church where a bunch of people come to me and go, Pastor Peter, if I, I, I only wish I knew what God's will was. I only wish I knew what God wanted me to do. And we use that to say, that's why I'm paralyzed. I just don't know. But I'm going, do you know that there are enough written, revealed will of God in Scripture to fill our entire lives? We could spend our entire lives in obedience to what God has clearly laid out. The problem is that we did. The problem is not that we don't know what to do. The problem is that we don't do what we know. Can I say that again? The problem is not that I don't know what God wants me to do. The problem is that we do not know what to do, but we do not do what we already know. If you were waiting for revelation from God, don't wait for God to come miraculously. Obedience. When you submit yourself to God's revealed will, your future will become clearer to you. Amen? Don't wait to say, God, I just don't know what to do. God says, begin doing the things that I've already clearly told you to do. Then your future will become clear. Why are we condemning God for being silent when we have condemned ourselves for refusing to listen? If that hurts, clap. It's one of those things. But that's us. That's us. Why do we continue to blame God and saying, you do not speak? And God says, I have spoken to fill your entire life, child. Begin doing what I've clearly communicated to you. Then your future will become clear. Amen? It is clearly written in Scripture. You may not know how God's going to solve your financial crisis, but you know that the solution is never to steal. You may not know how God is going to bring that special person into your life, but never, ever compromise. You may not know how God is going to bring that special person in your life, but God's solution, never, ever compromise. You may not know what the consequence of telling the truth will be, but never, ever lie. You know what life storms are? They're interventions. See, many of us go, life storms, punish. They're not punishment from God. They are merciful interventions of a God who is after you with his affection, not his anger. 
I have some close friends who are part of AA. And it's interesting that the language interventions is a vital part of AA. And what is an intervention? It's what somebody who says, I am going to head down this path of destruction. I don't care what anybody does. And their closest friends, loved ones, and their sponsors intervene on their behalf. And interventions basically look at them and say, you cannot do this on your own. You do not have control of your life. You are weak. You are dependent. And if you head down this way, you will destroy yourself. Intervention. Interventions of God are comes, uh, that come into our lives, you guys, are God's way of saying, unless you realize that you are absolutely incompetent to run your life, you are incompetent to run your life. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? Have you realized that you're incompetent to run your life? Are you, are you there yet? Stop running. Submit to the divine, a loving hand of God that says, this is loving intervention, child. If you allow God to pin you down, it'll be the most magnificent defeat you've ever experienced. I love the fact that our God's ability to clean things up is way greater than our ability to mess things up. And I love the fact that the gospel tells me even though sin reaches far, his grace reaches further. See, this is the reason why I'm amazed at the rest of this narrative. Because you know what happens in verse 24? God intervenes and they're all saved. All of them. Let me press this a little further and then we'll move on. How many of us put ourselves in situations where we deserve the outcome? Mistreated others, lied broke promises. How many of us have been in that place? And yet the result was it was God not only did not give us what we deserve, but he lessened the consequences. Anybody? 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. A theologian said, don't ever ask God for justice because you just may get it. I've said this last two weeks in a row, and I'm going to say it one more time. Hopefully it clicks with you. We are phenomenal at keeping a record of all the times where we thought we deserved the good that we did not get. But how often do we keep a record of all the times where we deserved something else, but God kept us from it? That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, by the what? Mercies of God, I offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is what God has done. One last thing, and then I'll move on. This is why when you realize this, the thing that surprises me because of how we treat God and treat others, the, thing, the, the logical conundrum, did I just use two words that, okay, I should just say conundrum, <laughs> the logical conundrum. The conundrum in life is not, given how we treat God and treat others, is not why is there so much evil and suffering in the world. The real conundrum for me is why is there so much beauty, so much love, so much hope, so much goodness. If you don't realize this about your life and my life, we'll never get better. We're just going to get bitter. God is merciful. Oh. Is that good news to anybody this morning? I'm telling you, I've been challenging you to do this, you guys. Start keeping a record of all the times that God doesn't give you what you deserve. Your spiritual life. 
will take a different turn. Going on, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make life secure, life was secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard and passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it. By the way, are you amazed at the level of detail? Okay? I mean, he, and I thought about it. I'm like, how is it that, because there's some people who've said this is pure fiction. Because he writes with so much detail. Well, I, I can tell you, how many of you guys have ever been in a horrific incident where the emotional adrenaline just was, <laughs> anybody? And how many of you remember your memory being really, really sharp because of that and not less? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, that's what's going on. His, you could just imagine, he's on the ship, he's observing, noticing everything. That's why years later, he writes with such clarity of what happened. When the men was aboard, brother, oh, where was I? Where did I, verse 18, uh, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sartis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm the next day that they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. Check this out. So they've been literally just wandering in open sea in pitch darkness. Pitch darkness. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve. Real quick, what a wonderful way to introduce yourself to a non-Christian. Who are you? Who is this God? This God, he is whose I am and whom I serve. What? Thugs have a gentle side too, you know. Okay, here we go. Stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before child, before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Act 3, the power of life's witness. Most commentators point out that it's at this point that Paul gains control of the ship. He becomes essentially the leader on the ship. Why? Two reasons. I love this. Number one, his character. Do you notice what he does? He says, men, I told you you should have listened to me. That's awfully generous. Because you know what I would have done? I told you so. I told you so. Told you so. Told you so. That's what I would have done. I would have rubbed it in. And said, but what does Paul do? There's no I told you so. He is humble. But he is also confident. He says, but God has given me assurance. And this is what we need to do. Confident, humility. Humble, confidence. The only people that get this are people who have the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply embedded in them. Let me show you. If Paul doesn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ and realize that he is more wicked and sinful than he dared believe, here's his attitude. I'm better than you, you bunch of nincompoops, bunch of idiots. What do you know about seafaring? Who? But the gospel comes and says, you are more wicked and sinful than you dare believe. 
If you have any sense of superiority, I don't care who you are, you don't get the gospel. If you are not dying every day to this human, innate human nature that wants to sort of prop ourselves up as being better than somebody because of race, because of class, because of education, because of our physical attributes, because of whatever. If you are not humble, you don't understand the gospel. But also at the same time, Paul is not just, well, you know, if you want, he is bold, he is confident. Why? Gospel? Although we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. Are you a man of confident humility? Are you a woman of confident humility? His character. Second reason why is his life. Is his life. Do you think they noticed how Paul responded to what was going on? Do you think it became visible to them that in the midst of tragic circumstances, in the midst of circumstances and events that was absolutely freaking them out where they're giving up loss, love, all hope, do you think it noticed, do you think they noticed the fact they're seeing this man who's not just of character, but he is calm, he is of courage. I've said to you repeatedly, as much as we talk about the gospel to other people, Sometimes the most powerful witness is what they see in our lives, particularly when they see our lives of beauty, of joy, of strength and courage during times and circumstances that would absolutely destroy them. Our lives become testimony to the unbelieving world when it becomes inexplicable. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I really think that if our lives make sense to non-Christians, we're not living the Christian life. When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, you're a Christian, your life just doesn't make any sense? Why? If you, if you live out your life in this uncertain economic other times, if you live out your life in this time and your non-Christian friends and peers and neighbors are see a man or woman of courage, of calm, of unwavering faith, your life will not make any sense. If you're a single man or woman, and during this time of singleness, you live with deep abiding contentment, not just fake sort of, nah, I'm okay, but deep abiding contentment, your life to your peers and your friends will not make any sense. If you respond with kindness and gentleness and unfair criticism and unfair judgment by your boss, by your coworkers and your neighbors, your life will not make any sense. What is the gospel according to you? And what is the gospel according to me? It's the gospel that says, yes, Jesus Christ is powerful enough to come and still the storms. And sometimes he'll do that. Other times he will give us courage and sufficient grace to endure so that our lives will become a testimony. What is the gospel according to you and according to me? Is it that our God sometimes intervenes and shows off his power and might and does something miraculous? Or is it other times that he shows off his power and might through you and through me? And the world looks at us and says, it just doesn't make any sense. Because of Paul's witness Everybody on the ship, their lives are saved twice. And we'll get to that right now.
On the 14th night, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took surroundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Isn't that funny? Where y'all going? We're going, we're going snorkeling. What? No, no. Leo Paul says, no. He said, the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut their ropes and held the lifeboat, and they let it fall away. Final act, final chapter, the sovereignty of God over circumstances. Oh, yeah, check this out, you guys. Okay. Um, so he says in verse 22, God has given me assurance that nobody is going to die. We're going to suffer a little loss damage, but nobody is going to die. The angel of God told me it is as certain as done. He better be sure because in Deuteronomy 18 it says, if anybody's a false prophet and gives false prophecy, you should be stoned to death. I think Paul was sure. And yet in verse 32, 33, what does Paul say? Paul says, hey, hey, everybody, Stay in the ship. If you don't, you're all going to die. To which, if you're really paying attention this morning, and you're awake, and you're still tuned in, you're going, that doesn't make any sense. I want to you said, hey, everybody's going to live. God told you so. And then you're telling us, we got to stay in the ship or we're going to die. Greatly indebted to a guy named Tim Keller for his insight into this right here. How many of you guys are familiar with the TV show Flash Forward? I love that show. Do you know why? John Cho. A Korean leading man, sort of, <laughs> sort of. And in romance with an African-American woman, that's hot. You know what I'm saying? That's hot. I'm just going to throw it out there. That's hot. And I really, it was, do you know that it was canceled? It canceled it. After one season, it's canceled. I know. What happened to all the uprising amongst the Korean-Americans? We're lame. Anyway, so. The show's canceled. But here's the premise. It's based on a sci-fi novel by a guy named Robert Sawyer. And check this out. Check this out. And the whole show, if those of you are not familiar with it, the whole show is based around this. There's a cataclysmic blackout or event that occurs in the entire world for two minutes and 17 seconds where every single person living on the face of the earth sees their future. And so the whole show is about this. Is my future determined and fixed and there's nothing that I can do? Can I do something to change my destiny? Come on. Our culture's wrestled with this for like 30, 40 years. Back to the Future, anybody? Back to the Future movies, right? Butterfly effect, you know? A poor man's version of, you know, Back to the Future, butterfly effect. Anybody? Ashton Kutcher, one of the actual movies that I actually enjoyed. Ashton Kutcher, anybody? Okay. All right, let's take a poll. Let's take a poll. See how theologically accurate we are. How many of you guys believe that our lives are fixed and determined. In other words, fate rules overall. Raise your hands. Okay, this is a participating sport, okay? You cannot chicken out. You can't. Show some guts. How many of you think? Three people, okay? How many of you guys is, Nate is it up there, free will? How many of you guys say, that's stupid. Our lives are not determined and fixed. It's up to us. Wide open, undetermined. We get to choose. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. So like the rest of y'all, please. In the middle? Oh! Okay. 
all right, situationally, okay. Well, here's what our culture says. Here's what our culture says. Our culture says this. Our culture says it's either or. It's either or. And by the way, our culture is influenced by Western, Enlightenment, individualist mindset. It's either or. It's either or. It's either fixed, determined. There's nothing that you can do, even if you try. So your life, other people say, it's totally open, wide open. Will you and I determine our future? Do you know what the Bible says? It says it's both. To which a bunch of people that struggle with pride in our church are going, I knew it. Yep, I knew it. I knew it. You think you're so smart. Okay, come up here and preach the rest of this. You think you're so smart. It's both. It's both. Here's the unbelievable thing about what the Bible says. The Bible says, unlike any other religious philosophy in the world, and by the way, there's a going, why are we talking about philosophy? You can't, I can't tell you how practical this is, and I'll pra- apply it at the end. Okay. This is so, the Bible says our future and our lives are determined at the same time, our choices, our decisions, and what we do in our life absolutely matters. It's both. The Bible says, in principle and in practice, you have freedom to choose. You make your choices. You make those decisions. Who to marry, where to work, have kids, not have kids. All those decisions you make. And there will be consequences as a result of those decisions. You can't blame God. can't blame other people. Well, somebody made me do it. See, made me do it. You can't do that. You chose. But at the same time, God says... With the decisions and choices you make, God works out his perfect plan, not despite our choices, but through them. And those of us that are clapping are like, that is great news for me, Peter, because if I were to show you the 10 past years of my life, let's go there. Look at what Proverbs says. Proverbs 16.1. To man belongs the plans of the heart. But from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Proverbs 16, 9. And there are tons of these, by the way. I just chose two. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You see that? Here's what it's saying. Your choice, your plans, they're yours. You make them. There will be consequences. If you make stupid, wicked, cruel decisions, there will be consequences. People will be accountable, and they should. God will hold you accountable, and God should. Your choices absolutely matter. God is somehow able to take and weave our words as well as the deeds we do and the result of that and fit it into his perfect plan for our lives in such a way that we don't revise it, we don't thwart God, but God proceeds in history in our lives exactly as he wants. Is that good news to anybody? Is it confusing to anybody? Of course it is. If you were to be honest, some of us would sit there and go, that doesn't make any sense. How does God fix things, determine things, and at the same time give us free will? I can't figure that out, to which I'm going, of course you can't figure it out. But if there is a God, and he is perfectly knowing and all-powerful, couldn't he do it? Well, but I'm not God. We know that. <laughs> we're a little underqualified, as I said last week, for this job. Why is this practical? Let me show you why it's practical. If you're a thinking person, and if your entire future was absolutely fixed, absolutely determined, regardless of what you do, what would your life look like? Let's be honest. What would your life look like? We'd be passive. We'd be indifferent, right? We'd be slobs. Our lives would be messy. My choices might... And by the way, for those of you going, I don't really theologically believe that, but the way you live out your life displays your theology. 
If we really believe that our lives are determined and fixed, and we have sort of this, there's nothing that I can do, whether it be God or some faith. It is fixed it. My life sucks, and this is what it's going to be. My life sinks. This is what it's going to be. I have, if that is how you think and feel, our lives are going to be indifferent, passive. But at the same time, flip side. If we believe the other, which is... My life is totally up to me, and everything that I do determines my future. If you were a really thinking person, you would be paralyzed, wouldn't you? Come on, let's be honest. How many of us, if we really, really believe that everything that I do in my life is totally up to me, would actually get up in the morning? And if you say, I would, it's either because you're not thinking right or you're really, really proud. Look, when I was 22, I really, really wanted to marry a woman who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, if I had married her, it would have been the absolute disastrous thing to do. Two-thirds of my life and decisions that I've made, somebody came up to me last week and said, Pastor Peter, I'm glad God doesn't answer some of my prayers because if God really answered some of my prayers... How many of you are glad that God doesn't answer some of your prayers? This is what I'm talking about, right? Two-thirds of my life. Two-thirds of my life. Decisions that I made, it feels totally up to me. So let me ask you this. I'm 40 now, so I'm 18 years older. Yeah. I just broke with stereotype. Not all Asians are good at math. Thank you very much. 18. How much wiser am I? Maybe a little bit. But really, guys, what fool, knowing how limited we are, how little we know about how the universe works, would want the universe to work in such a way that it was totally up to me and the decisions that I make? Oh, Lord. I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to church, a bunch of 20-somethings that says, I choose free will, really? But the beautiful news of the gospel is what? The, biblical says, the Bible says what? Hey, it's not either or, it's both and. The Bible says that God is somehow able to work out his perfect plans. And this is found throughout scripture. Joseph, Jacob, Mo, I mean, list goes on of men and women that I could point to. Esther. God is able to work out his perfect plans, not despite our choices, but through them. And that means, one, we get up even morning and depending on God, we live out our lives with utmost integrity. We work hard and we become good witnesses to people around us. And to the best of our ability, we use wisdom. And people around us, we make decisions and choices that try and honor God and honor people around us. But at the end of the day, the Bible says we can relax. Because this God that we serve somehow is able to take the decisions and choices that we make. That's why Paul is so much poised and calm. Decisions that we make, even the dumb ones, even the stupid ones that we make. And God says, those don't thwart or revise my plan for your life, child. He says, I take those decision choices you make and somehow I'm able to weave and put together those in such a way that my plans for your life are fulfilled and my plans for history continue. Is that good news? I mean, for crying out loud, some of us, Okay, let me, let me apply this and, and then we're done. How many of you guys need to make some decisions in your life and will need to make some decisions in your life? Anybody? All of us, right? At some point? I think one of the reasons why Christians have such misconceptions of what it means to decide or, or seek God's will, God's guidance is because of this whole issue. This whole issue. What do I mean? I get somebody come to me and says, I want to find out God's will for my life, Peter. I need to know God's will for my life. I have a decision to make. What do I do? You know what I tell them? Make a decision. 
Okay, I don't think you really heard what I said, Peter. Let me, let me say, okay. And they go on. I, I, I need to, I, I'm seeking God. I'm praying. I'm sensing peace. I'm wanting to sense peace. I need to know what God wants me to do. I want to make sure my motives are pure. I want to make sure that I seek everybody's wisdom. I want God to tell me what God wants me to do. And I, and I go, make a decision. And a lot of times they get really mad at me. They go, that's not a very pastoral response. And then I break it down for them. I go, okay, let's think about this. Number one. If you waited until your motives were perfectly pure, you and I would wait forever. Somebody asked me one time, said, Pastor Peter, do you make sure that your motives are pure before you go up and preach? And I go, absolutely not. Why not? Are you kidding me? Like you're asking me this question. Because if I waited until my motives were absolutely pure until I preached, I would never preach. Every decision that we make, thank God for God's grace and mercy, is tainted with some level of selfishness. We do our best to say, God, I put it before you and submit, but Lord, it's ultimately up to you. So I do it. Secondly, some people who say, I just want God to tell me. I wish, and they dress in the spiritual language. You know what that is? It's immaturity. It's immaturity. God says, I give you a mind. I gave you, I gave you thought process. I give you people. I give you wisdom. Think, think, think. And make a decision. We go, no, I want you to tell me. We think it's spiritual. You know what that's like? Imagine my son Parker right now. He's five years old. Daddy, I want a glass of water. Okay, go. Go to the refrigerator, get a cup and get a glass of water. Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I get some Cheerios? Sure, Parker. How much do you want? Fast forward. I got to do math now. He's five. 17 years later, okay? He's in college as a senior. He calls me up. Dad, yeah, Parker. Can I get some water? Dad, can I get some Cheerios? There's some parents who want that. God is not one of them. Are you hearing me? Where's our fear? But if I make a decision, what if it's the wrong? Third, 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 third one. Peace. This whole, this whole business of peace. I need to experience peace. Oh, Lord. You guys, come on. There are times when God will call us to do something that is absolutely right, and you and I will feel, what? No peace. And there are things when we're stuck doing things that we are absolutely designed to God, and you know what? We will have absolute peace. I think about this. What if Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago said, God, I don't have a lot of peace about this going to the cross thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not feeling. We dress up in spiritual language when in fact it is an absolute distrust of God's sovereignty. This is so beautiful about making decisions. Andy you, or uh, Grace, you can come on up. We're almost on here. Because God says, when you need to make a decision, understand that you serve a God who is big, who is huge, who is sovereign. And this God has lovingly given you what's called theologians free will to choose because your decisions and your choices absolutely matter. So pray, seek counsel, and do what you think I am leading you to do. But at the end of the day, step out in faith and boldness and make a decision. Because if you make the quote-unquote wrong decision, I will work with that decision in that place with those people to advance my will for your life. 
Mm. My will for your life and my will for the world in a way that you would not have been able to recognize elsewhere. Is that good news? Oh, it's wonderful news. How many of of us, how many of us have really made bad decisions and choices like in the last, oh, I don't know, two days? No, no, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I mean, some of us, I'm serious, and and I'm going to end with praying for you. Some of us are sitting here, and the reason why you're far from God is because, A, you think that various stones that God has sent to your life, God is punishing you for the decisions you make, when in fact they're interventions to draw you to his loving arms. Because God isn't after you. God is after you. Did you hear what I said? God is never after you because he's saying, God is after you, child. And some of us are sitting going, I'm just beating myself up, Peter, and I'm far from God because I've made some really poor, bad decisions and I'm scared to death that what perfect good plan that God had for me, it's done, man. It's over. God comes along today and says, If you only knew how much I love you, how much I desire for you, and the incredible things that I have called you to do and planned for your life, it's on track. It's on track. Don't worry. He's that big, He's that gracious, He's that merciful. Can I pray for anybody this morning? Can we as church pray for anybody? What do I mean by that? I don't know. I just said a bunch of things. How many of you are sitting there going, I just need prayer right now. I don't, something you said, so, I just need prayer right now. I just need God, the Holy Spirit to speak to me right now, Peter. And I just need some prayer right now. Can you stand up? Stand up. Stand up. No, stand up. Come on. Come on. Don't wait. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Don't wait. Don't wait. Stand up. Stand up. Fast. Come on. Come on. Okay. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. We're a praying church, you guys. We're a praying church. We, we are the hands and the mouth of Christ. I specifically, intentionally didn't say, here's what I need you to stand up for. I just, I just asked you to stand up. And do you know why you stood up? Because you are actually capable of listening to the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? You are actually capable, child of God, listening to the Holy Spirit. He just prompted. He just prompted you. You obey. You obey. You can listen to his voice. He is your shepherd. You are his sheep. You, you know his voice. And now what I need is for those of you that are, that are standing around these men and women to stand up, okay? Sitting around. Stand up right now so that nobody is left alone. Nobody is left alone. We do this as a regular part of our church. Nobody is left alone. Will you just surround them? Will you just surround them right now? We're not going to pray long, but I need you to just surround these men and women who stood up. Who stood up. They may need assurance of God. They may need the confident whisper of God. They may, I don't know what they need, but, 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 but they're standing in humility before you and before me. So will you surround them? Thank you, church. Thank you, church, for being the church. Thank you, church, for being the church. Yeah. And I just want you to quietly just pray for that person. Pray via the Holy Spirit that the truths that were spoken this morning will be deeply mis- ministered to, massage, embedded in their hearts. Just go ahead, go ahead. Pray. Pray for that brother. Pray for that sister. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's minister to one another as the body of Christ.
minister one another as the body of Christ. sovereign. He is loving. He is just. He is in control. He is for you. He is with you. He is your Savior. He is your Redeemer. He is your rock and salvation. He is your fortress in time of need. He is your provider. He is your God. He is your beloved. He is your beloved. He is your beloved. stand together. We're going to end with this hymn. And I'm going to read you I'm going to read you a little background of the guy who wrote this hymn. The guy who wrote this hymn in the context. It's written by a guy named Horatio Spafford who was born on October 20th 1828 in New York. He was a successful lawyer in Chicago who maintained a keen interest in Christian activities. was deeply spiritual devoted to the scriptures faithful man of God. Sometime in 1871, a fire in Chicago heavily devastated the city. And months before that, Spafford invested hugely in real estate by the shore of Lake Michigan. The disaster not only greatly wiped out his holdings, but before the fire, Spafford also experienced the loss of his son. Two years after the fire, Horatio Spafford planned a trip to Europe for him and his family. He wanted a rest for his wife and four daughters and also to assist D.L. Moody and Sankey in one of their evangelistic campaigns in Great Britain. He wasn't meant to travel with his family. The day in November they were due to depart, Spafford had a last-minute business transaction and had to stay behind in Chicago. Nevertheless, he still sent his wife and four daughters to travel as scheduled on the SS Vilduharv. 
expecting to follow in a few days. On November 22nd, the ship laden with his wife and daughters was struck by the Loch Kern, an English vessel, and it sank in a few minutes. After the survivors were finally landed somewhere at Cardiff, Wales, Spefford's wife cabled her husband with two simple words, saved alone. Shortly after, Spefford left by ship on his way where his beloved four daughters had drowned and pen at hand, he wrote this hymn. When sorrows like sea billows roll and the hymn, It is well with my soul, was born. It's noteworthy that he didn't dwell on the theme of life's sorrows and trials. That's the beauty of this hymn. Instead, he focused on the third stanza on the redemptive work of Christ and the fourth verse which anticipates his glorious coming where he will renew all things. Let's sing this together, church. It's a closing hymn of response. Tendeth my way Sorrows like sea and billows roar. It's good news. That is good news. That is good news. That is good news. This is not a prayer. It's a declaration. Just the voices. It is well. Say it out. With my soul. No matter what. It is well. It is well with my soul. God, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for reminding us today of your nature, of your character, and your ways. You are God. You are God. Hallelujah. It's absolutely right. For those of you that want to linger and pray, I want to encourage you to do so. Pastor Michael and I will be up here if you want to pray with us. I want to pray for you and with you rest of you have a great week as you go forth remember who it is that you worship you serve remember who it is that is in your life in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said amen amen have a great week you guys we'll see you back here next Sunday